Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. Now, John is back from his stay in Iceland, and I'm suffering from allergies, but none of that is important now, because this is the start of our fourth and final quarter of our Troll Through the Family Sagas. And we're opening this quarter with a big one. That's right, everyone. We're finally ready to tackle Laxdala Saga. Hooray! This is the beginning. The beginning of our dive into the rich world of Laxdala Saga. We've got a lot to be excited about with this, one of the most beloved and beautifully crafted of the sagas of Icelanders. Yeah, no, I'm excited, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little nervous about this. Well, it's like getting ready for the first drop on a roller coaster. And, and yes, we, we just got coaster, that first click in. Yeah, the roller coaster made of 400 named individuals spanning many <laughs> generations over a wide swath of Iceland. Exactly yeah. like a roller coaster. Kind of undermines the analogy there, but okay. You know... Um, I once spent half an hour stuck on a malfunctioning roller coaster at the top of a 220-foot drop, and this isn't quite that bad, but it's <laughs> undeniably a big undertaking. No kidding. Well, well, this is one of the big ones, like we said. Uh, it's arguably one of the three most famous sagas, along with Njal and Ale sagas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could maybe make an argument for Greta saga in there as well, but I like to think of the big three. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and what I'm bracing for isn't really the saga itself. It's how strongly people feel about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think not since Njal have we dealt with one where, you know, sort of everybody has an opinion. Everybody has a take on the saga. But we'll we'll get to all that. Uh, do you want to explain briefly what everyone's letting themselves in for here? Well, all right. So Lexdala Saga is the story of several interrelated families and the various marriages, alliances, and feuds that shape the course of their lives over six or seven generations. That's it? Well, that's it. Briefly, yes, that's exactly what <laughs> that's exactly what it is. But if you want to do the longer version, uh, it's probably going to take a little over a dozen episodes. Uh huh. Yeah, but your version didn't give any names. What about Gudrun Oswald's daughter, uh, Kjartan Olofsson, uh, Bali, and his son also Bali? Uh, what of Snorri <laughs> the Gothi and Al the Deep-minded? Andy, what about Alan Twigbelly? Yeah, you, you see, this sounds like you're doing a bit, and. You are, but it's a legit bit. The cast of characters in this saga is really, really large. Yeah. I I have a bit of a plan for dealing with that, which we'll get to later in the episode. Uh, But for now, let's just get introduced to the saga. Uh, Mm -hmm. Unlike some of our other recent sagas, we don't have to look very far for scholarly reflections here. Uh, Opinions about Lockstyle Saga are like beards at the all thing. Almost everyone's got one, and they can be kind of prickly. Where shall we begin? (laughs) <laughs> well, let's start with a few standbys, shall we? Mm-hmm. The yeah, the medieval Scandinavian encyclopedia entry for Laxdella is written by Sverre Thomason, uh, and Sverre calls it one of the greatest of the Islandinga saga, with a treatment very often similar to that of medieval romances, especially in its moral undertones. Ah, uh, yeah, you have to love a good moral undertone. Yeah, and I mean, his point seems to be that it's more overt. Uh, his point seems to be that it's a more overt theme in this saga than in most. And I think uh, that's... Hang on, actually, I've got a quote from Margaret Arendt that has a similar take. Uh-huh. Uh, here it is, here it is. Fate never operates as deus ex machina in the saga. Instead, the author amalgamates the natural and the supernatural causes of events. The characters follow the dictates of their own hearts and the demands of moral law, neither flinching before what has been ordained nor attempting to to avert the inevitable. Hmm. I like that a little bit better. It's wordier, but I like it a little yeah, bit better. You know. I mean, 
we're definitely going to be seeing the influence of continental romances in this saga. Uh, but it is still a saga. It still belongs firmly in what we are calling the family saga tradition. And we're oh, going to explore that. Yeah. But that scholarly interest in the romance influence on this saga runs deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, our old friend, uh, Jonas Christensen, marks uh, Lockstall as the dividing line for continental influence. Hmm. He says, Pomp and splendor are more evident in this saga than in earlier sagas. Pomp in arms and armor and dress, splendor in physical beauty and manly prowess. Yeah, there's definitely something to that, as we'll see. This saga has a bit of that romance habit of identifying people as the most handsome and the greatest beauty. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, we're especially going to see that when we get to the middle section of the saga and the love triangle of Kjartan, Gudrun, and Boli. Oh, definitely. Uh, but Christensen is clear about the balance of genre here. He says, Despite its chivalric features, Lux Dalla Saga is not a saga of chivalry. It firmly belongs among the, among the Islandinga Solar. The courtly elements are there as spice. Not substance. I like that. Yes. That sounds very positive, by it the does. way. It uh, does. He goes on for a while. Uh, Lockstall gets actually quite a long discussion in Christensen. He's clearly a fan. Uh, and speaking of big fans, Andy, uh, no less a figure than Haldor Locksness has weighed in here. Yes. Haldor's a big deal. For anyone who's not up on their modern Icelandic literature, Haldor Laxness is Iceland's most exalted 20th century writer and the only Icelandic winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. Pretty so far. So far, yes. Uh, Haldor wrote, and I'm, I'm translating here, so bear with me. Laxdala is a polished work known as a great fiction. One may say that its foundation is ancient material from the deepest historical spirit of the race. The author then builds the work on those foundations from a realistic understanding of human life from his own time, the 13th century. Yet the story also soars to the heights of the greatest romantic stories of that century. Hmm. Beautifully put, and not surprising from Haldor. Right. Um, but I think it's fair to say after that that Haldor approves of this saga. Oh, I think we can say that, yes. Uh, but it, I think it's useful to keep that assessment in mind. Uh, this is a saga that somewhat paradoxically has long been read as one of the most realistic and simultaneously one of the greatest fictional literary achievements of Iceland. Now, Stefan Anderson introduces his comments on Laxdala with what is, for him, effusive praise, but also very much in that vein. Mm-hmm. He says, In Laxdala saga, one finds folklore, the old Viking spirit of Ale saga, the heroism of the Eddic poems, and the new romantic spirit mixed as so many ingredients in a cocktail. Ooh, check out the big similes on Stefan. Yes, hang on, hang on though. He goes on, It is one of the longest sagas, but it is well constructed, <laughs> except perhaps for the somewhat rambling introduction. Oh, <laughs> well, that took a turn. So um, he likes it, but only the parts he likes. Well, kind of. And and John, we've read the introduction. We know what he's talking about. It's yep. not great. <laughs> and he's definitely not the only one to criticize the first section of the saga. No, he is not. Um, let's take a look at Njordur Njordvik, uh, who edited an Icelandic edition of Lakstala in 1969. His critical introduction includes this gem. The introduction to Lockstala is by far the longest of the sagas, but a large part of it is outside the main story. It's true that Kjartan and Bali's ancestors take land in Iceland, and how they fare in their new, new homeland is of interest. But the reader still feels that various elements of the introduction could be dropped. And that's a, that's a translation, <laughs> but I think it's pretty close to the original sentiment. 
Uh-huh. Uh, and Jane Smiley's description of the plot of Loxella skips over the entire first third of the saga and just tells the story of Gudrun's marriages and feuds. Wow. You see, the, the problem is that we actually have to cover this entire saga. So starting by telling everyone <laughs> that the first third of the thing is trash, that doesn't really do much, much does do us any favors. Yeah. We want people to listen to these episodes and we've got to mine them for some gold. <laughs> it's in there somewhere, right? Well, they've already started listening to the podcast. We've got them now. We've already hooked the fish. we got to do one of those uh, internet clickbait titles like, uh, you won't believe what happened to Gudrun in Laxdala Saga. Right, right. Uh, you'll never believe the one great trick in this saga. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, for the record, not everyone does think we can do without the beginning of this saga, by the way. Us, for example, we don't think you should skip these first chapters. Well, absolutely not. And uh, speaking of which, um, we could talk about the scholarship on this saga for a very, very long time, and we could talk about mm-hmm. other people's feelings about it for an even longer time. But uh, I'm raring to get into the actual saga. You want to you want to talk about those first few chapters? Yeah, I mean, I think we can. You know, we'll be we'll be able to bring up more scholarly reactions to this thing as we go along. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, we can sort of in the introductions we can talk about different things people have said. Yeah, but I agree. Uh, but there is one more quick thing we do need to cover: the Ravenkell's measurement. Oh, our arbitrary arbiter of the sagas we read. Okay, so uh, how does Lexdella stack up against the other sagas in the canon? It's got to be, you know, that's in a, the ale range. That's usually my question. Oh, sorry, I've definitely stolen it away from you. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Well, I already know the answer, so guessing will be kind of pointless. Yeah. Uh, Lockstall Saga is definitely one of the heavyweights. It breaks the tape at sixty-two thousand five hundred and forty words, or six point eight five Ravenkills. Oh, that's actually not as long as I thought it'd be. I thought maybe seven, eight, yeah. something like that. I had the same reaction. It's still top three. Mm-hmm. It's behind Ale Saga and Yal Saga. Well, we're not going to top Yal Saga for length. I think that's established. You. Uh, no, Nyal was almost 11 Robin kills. Ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so no, Loxdala can't take the title for heaviest saga, but pound for pound, which is the better saga? Well, I'm guessing we're going to spend the rest of the year finding out. Part one. Airbridge saga. Loxdala saga. It's, it's Loxdala, right? Oh, where to begin? Where to begin? Well, in the beginning... There was the word, <laughs> and it was good. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. Uh, I know I know this in theory. Uh, we begin at the beginning. But the beginning of this saga is just a massive genealogical spaghetti pile. It's And to make matters worse, it's virtually the same plate of spaghetti we were served up at the start of Erebus Saga. Okay, well, I have two things to say about that. First of all, uh, yeah. we covered Erebus Saga well over eight years ago, so we don't expect people to True. Uh, remember True. all that entire set of family trees. But I would also point out that Erbiga Saga doesn't just verbally dump all the names out in the way that the first three or four <laughs> chapters of this saga is just yeah. literally name after name after name after name. Yeah, no, I actually agree. I think Erbiga Saga does a, a more uh, sophisticated job of introducing it, right? It sort of it unfolds the family trees in a way that this saga doesn't. Yeah, by telling a story. Uh, right, right, exactly. But, um, I mean, I'll, we can cover it again, but it's on your head if this is a rerun for the nice people. <laughs> Uh, so at the outset, we're mainly dealing with the children and grandchildren of Kettle Flatnose, mm-hmm. uh, who's a Norwegian using Western exploration to get out from under the authoritative rule of Harold Fairhair. That's actually probably the best way to try to keep our bearings in this opening, uh, because there are about 70 or so named figures in the beginning of this saga. Yeah. Yeah. But the important through line is we're going to be ar- learning about the arrival of an extended clan of people 
and their domination over the Snuffleupagus Peninsula and the area surrounding. Yeah. Okay, so uh, go ahead, kick it off. Let's go. All right. Well, as we said, we begin with Kettle Flatnose. Kettle is married to Ingvild Kettle's daughter. See, now already we have problems. I know. It's a different Kettle. Uh, he's not married to his own daughter. Her dad's name is Kettle Ram. Right. So let's just ignore the, the older Kettle. Let's ignore her dad and focus on okay. Kettle Flatnose. Sure, fair enough. Uh, so Kettle and Ingvild have five children, uh, two sons and three daughters. Mm-hmm. The sons are Bjorn the Easterner and Helgi Bjolin. The daughters are Thorin Hirne, Jorin Wisebrow, and Un the Deep-Minded. And the five of them begin a legacy that will shape their corner of Iceland for centuries. Ooh, very dramatic. Thank you. So, I, I heard you say Un the Deep-Minded. Um, yes. Now, she's usually called Aud or Alv, Alv the Deep-Minded, mm-hmm. or Oid, or yeah, yeah. take your pick. Right, yeah. I mean, we, we should acknowledge right away that we're going to be using, as always, we'll be using um, sort of anglicized pronunciations of a lot of the figures in these sagas, mm-hmm. uh, except for where we think that the name sort of translates very well uh, into sort of anglophonic uh, sound. Um, so Alv the Deep-Minded. Yeah, Alv's been an important settlement figure in a lot of the sagas we've read. Um, especially uh, Erbidja uh, and Eric the Red Saga. And she's going to be the most important of Kettle and Ingvild's kids for our story. Yes, but uh, in this saga, it appears that her name is Un. Well, in this saga, yeah, for whatever reasons, yes, her name is reported differently. There are a few theories about this. Uh, the one I like best is actually is that her name was originally Un, or at least Un with some kind of prefix. Right? Her sisters are Jorun and Thorun. Uh, so it might make sense that her name would follow that pattern. Um, but in in the logic of this argument, she sheds the name later and takes the name Alth as her Christian name. Now, if her sisters are named Jorun and Thorun, and her mm-hmm. name should be then a compound as well, Althun, right. it would imply that the Alth, the Thor, the Jor, uh, those are the pagan sides, not Christian sides of her names. Well, no, there's no suggestion that Alvun would be her name. I mean, there could be a suggestion that Alvun was her name. Well, I mean, you could make that suggestion, but it's you making it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the point that this that this argument makes is that it is likely that, like Thorin and Jorun, both um, prefixes that are associated with pagan names, mm-hmm. uh, that that this character, Un the Deep-Minded, would have had a name that also had a sort of pagan-leaning prefix. Yeah. And that Alv, which is a more sort of neutral name um, in in sort of in the history of sagas, uh, would be a more sort of Christian or at least uh, Christian adjacent name for her to take. So, Alder. No, I'm not arguing that I agree with this. By the way, I'm just lay, laying this out as a nice argument. Alder means prosperity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what about Un? What does Un mean? I assume you're looking this I up. That's what I'm doing. Uh, means to love. Oh. Love or wave mm-hmm. or, yeah. So her sisters are uh, love of Thor and love of Yor. Um, so whatever she loved, it probably wasn't Jesus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So she takes on Alvin as a Christian name, right? Perhaps. Sure, but I mean that's just speculation. I, I feel like we're 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 really close to figuring out how this all played out, but uh, we just don't have enough information. So she's either owner or other. Yeah, 
All right. So uh, we have a big decision to make here, John. Are we going to call her Av or Un for this saga? Well, as you pointed out before we started recording, this is a problem only really for this one episode because, um, spoilers, Alv is not going to be with us beyond this episode. Um, but as far as what to call her, we are but the messengers, Andy. The author has voted for Un. On the other hand, from a podcasting perspective, it makes sense for her to have a consistent name with what she has in every other song. Yeah, I tend to agree with that, which is why I'm going to vote for Alv. Yeah, I think we're going to get emails on this one no matter what we decide, but I'll go with Alv as well. Okay. Um, if that theory is right, and I'm not necessarily endorsing it, uh, it's the name she chose for herself. And if not, it's still the name that she's usually known by. All right. So Kettle and his family are Norwegian, but it's a familiar story. Um, it really quickly, we're introduced to the rise of Harold Fairhair, um, and that means mm-hmm. that independent-minded landowners are, are going to be fleeing and being forced out of the country. Yeah, and and Kettle can read the runes on the wall. He calls a meeting of his people and says, in essence, Look, you all know that we've had the sharp end of the spear from Harold for a while now. Personally, I'm fine with carrying on resisting, but that's going to get us all killed eventually. The other option is to leave, which uh, everyone else seems to be doing. What do you think? Obviously, there's some muttering in the crowd, but then Kettle's son, Bjorn, shouts, I can tell you what I want. There's no honor in waiting here for Harold's men to come rob us and kill us. I think the worthier course is to flee. And then mm. the crowd all shout agreement. Yeah, I think they're just glad somebody else said yeah, it first. Yeah, yeah. There, there's absolutely no argument from anyone here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an interesting spin on the idea of honor. Uh, we tend to think of honor as being about standing and fighting. But here... Yeah, yeah, I think there are sagas that think that way as well. Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> obviously. But the uh, uh but you know, we do have precedents for other medieval writers uh choosing to try to make a kind of uh, uh an honorable and manly virtue out of choosing to flee. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the Anglo-Saxon version of Exodus. Mm. Uh when the author is really at pains to make the flight of the Jews from Egypt sound like a sort of manly and military oh, retreat. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so there is kind of precedent for that sort of thinking. Yeah, but I don't know that that's what's happening here, but but it, but it's interesting. Probably not. Uh, you know what? I think that the, the author misses the opportunity that the Erbegis saga author really takes advantage of, which is to have mm-hmm. a more honorable and even cunning departure for Kettle and his family, where right. Kettle ends up going to the Hebrides fighting on behalf of King Harold, uh, uses King Harold's own army to conquer the territories, and then sends the armies back once he's established himself. Um, you also get a nice right, story of right. Bjorn the Easterner in that story that makes more sense than the story we get yes. here. Everything's kind of just rushed. Right. It actually explains why he's called Bjorn the Easterner. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, but the uh, you know whatever whatever way we want to read it, the position that Kettle and company are taking here is that staying in Norway is essentially choosing to be butchered pointlessly, or at least to be robbed shamefully by an oppressive monarch. Running away to a new place with new challenges to be met is is therefore the more honorable course here. Right, which means this is a refugee story. Yeah, yeah it is. Well, I mean, to be fair, most sagas are ultimately, but uh, this one really mm-hmm. emphasizes that fact. Yeah, uh, conditions in their homeland are becoming intolerable and dangerous, and they see their only choices as fleeing or else fighting or waiting to be destroyed by the authoritarian King Harold. Mm-hmm. Actually, a lot of what's going to be happening over the next few generations 
It makes a lot of sense if we think of it as the narrative of a a displaced people struggling to find a place in the world. Uh, Something like The Godfather. Really? That's your go-to for this one? No, I mean, seriously, I, I... It won't become really obvious for a while yet, but when we get to the midpoint of the saga, I think that connection is going to make sense. Okay, well, that's something to look forward to. We'll see if I remember Uh, it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Uh, so everyone agrees it's time to flee, and the only real dispute is over where they should flee to. Yes, well, uh, reports are that Iceland's nice this time of year. It is, and Kettle's sons have got fistfuls of brochures. Yes, they do. Uh, which they're which they're waving around. <laughs> Come see sunny Iceland, where there's land for the taking, and the salmon are jumping out of the rivers to be caught. Beached whales decorate every beach. Come quick before we run out of trees. <laughs> that last one's not real, but the others they are. <laughs> uh, no, it it was all too real. But uh, the the rest of these are real arguments that were put forward by Kettle's sons, mm-hmm. uh, and most of the assembly likes the sound of you know free range whale carcasses. But Kettle decides to take a different direction. As he says, I don't intend to spend my old age in that fishing camp. Well, there's that Norwegian prejudice against Iceland. I mean, in fairness, his sons tried to sell it as a place full of fish and dead whales. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not surprising that his takeaway is that Iceland smells like low tide. <laughs> so the family decides to split at this point. Uh, Bjorn the Easterner, Helgi Bjolan, and their sisters Thorun and Jorun, they head to Iceland with their households. And Kettle and his daughter Aud, 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 Un, Awid, they plan to head out to Scotland and the Orkneys. Now, everyone gathers mm-hmm. at a big feast, which also happens to be a wedding feast, uh, because Thorun, Kettle's daughter, is marrying Helgi the Lean, who plans to travel with her to Iceland. Right, and we'll pick up uh, Kettle and Al's story in a few minutes. But first, the narrative follows the rest of the family to Iceland. And once they get there, they're doing pretty well for themselves. Oh, yes, they are. Yeah. Bjorn takes uh, most of the land on the southern shore of Breithafjord, which includes most of the Snaffelsnes Peninsula. Uh, I noticed no mention of Thorolf Mosterbeard and uh, Helgefell. Right, not yet. Mm-hmm. Right, We'll get to that later yeah, on. But uh, in the uh, Erbegis saga, all of that stuff comes first, and then Bjorn yep. comes in after. Right, and in Erdogan, it's specifically said that Bjorn owes Thorolf his farmstead. Absolutely. He's given land by Thorolf, who's there before him. So that would say here it's treated much more as he just kind of comes in and takes it from Exactly. So there's a potential uh, difference in the author's intentions and how they're telling these stories. What they choose to pay attention to and emphasize um, is usually going to be pretty important. Uh, Why it's important is up to us to decide. Um, right. Well, and in this case, very clearly, the focus of this saga, especially in the early chapters, is very much on the children of Kettle Flanders. Absolutely. Right. Anything that would take away from their primacy in the story is going to be either ignored or kind of brushed over. Quite right. Yes. So his brother, so um, uh, so Bjorn takes most of Iceland's southern shore. Um, that's most of Sa- Snaffelsnes Peninsula. Um, his brother Helgi takes a huge swath of land in Kjallarnes. Um, and the newlyweds, Thorun and Helgi the Lean, settle around Eyjafjord in the north. Right. So among them, they've essentially claimed a fair percentage of the entire coastline of Iceland for themselves. Well, yes. Uh, and and it, that might be kind of the point of this whole sequence here and mm-hmm. why we're ignoring other characters. Um, and right. at the very least, what they are claiming is the most desirable coastline. Right. With only the finest whale carcasses. The best. 
chef's kiss. Um, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Helgi Bjolin and Thorin Kettle's daughter, uh, they have kids that don't really impact this saga at all that much. So I think we can drop them at this point, if that's okay with you. But it is important mm-hmm. to remember that they're out there. Because it means that the children of Kettle Flatnose are going to be essentially the first leading family of Iceland. Right, sort of proto-Storgo. Then. Yeah, sort of, yes. Uh, they're, they're not usually portrayed that way, though. No, but that might be explained by the impulse toward nostalgia in the sagas, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, I mean, well, and by the fact that a fair number of the sagas were probably written by people who were descended from one or another branch of the Kettleson and Kettle Daughter clan. Yeah. Now, Bjord's family is much more directly involved in our story going forward, and we have met them before. Um, if you've been with us since Ebrigi Saga way back in episode three of this podcast, that saga was centered on a multi-generational conflict between the Thor's Nessings and the Kjallaklings. Right. This is that thing about Thor, the Thorolf Mosterbeard that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the, this is a feud that kicked off when the Kjallaklings protested the Thor's Nessings' dominance in the region, which, of course, means you have to accept that they were dominant in the region before these families arrived. Uh, and the Kjallaklings protested that dominance by collectively relieving themselves on the Thor's Nessings' holy mountain dedicated to Thor in what they claimed was some sort of resistance movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Kjallaklings... Resistance movement, Andy. Uh-huh. So the... When they drop their pants. Movement. Uh-huh. Not sure if that landed for you. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So the, the Kjallaklings... <laughs> <laughs> now the uh, the the Kjallaklings, the the ones de- de- that were desecrating, the, moving themselves all over the mountain. Yes, <laughs> um, these are the descendants of Bjorn the Easterner. Right. It's. I mean, it's never a bad time to remember the Battle of Poop Rock. Yeah. And the brave men who died that day. <laughs> Some of them while trying to pull their pants back yeah. up, and all of them with wet shoes. <laughs> their memory lives on. Uh, so that's where the rest of the family ended up. Uh, now let's go back to Thorun's wedding feast and uh, follow the trail of her father, Kettle Flatnose, and her sister, all the deep-minded, shall we? Part two: the journeys of uh, of all. Uh, what did we decide? Of all the deep mind, of all the deep-minded. Jesus Christ! That was even worse than I wanted it to be. <laughs> it's an embarrassment. I mean. This is this is what represents us, and look what you're doing to yourself. <laughs> uh, we do get more of Kettle's story in other sagas. Uh, he's usually more or less an extended cameo, but mm-hmm. we do learn enough to know that he's considered an important patriarch. Uh, but honestly, that's mostly through his children, the Kettlesons <laughs> and the Kettle Daughters. They really do set up an entire region of Iceland, I and mean, that is important. Yes, I mean... Andy, arguably all ancestors are important through their descendants, but okay. Hmm. So yeah, we're following Alv to the West, and Alv's really our main protagonist for the rest of this episode. Uh, Her story is the story of how challenging the search for a new home could be. Sort of, yeah. She does land on her feet in the Hebrides. Uh, She ends up marrying Olaf the White, uh, and Olaf's a Hiberno-Scandinavian kinglet, uh, so she's not doing that badly. Oh yeah, no, no. I I just mean that finding any kind of permanent stability is hard. Uh, mm-hmm. Marrying Olaf the White is definitely a good political and economic move. Um, according to Erbage Saga, Olaf was the great-great-grandson of Ragnar Lothbrok and Aslog Sigurd's daughter. So, you know, pretty good, mm-hmm. pretty great. Uh, yeah. Other sources, less, you know, inclined to mythology, give him different genealogies, but they all agree that he had some illustrious ancestors 
and rose to become King of Dublin in the mid-9th century. Yeah, a lot of the details are fuzzy, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. And even the nature of their marriage is a little uncertain. This was a political marriage, since Ketelet set himself up as a ruler in the Hebrides. But the two families didn't always get along, and some versions of the story have Alv and her son, Thorsten the Red, returning to the Hebrides before Olaf dies. Uh, which does eventually happen. Uh, he does get killed during one of the battles that periodically break out in Ireland around this time. Yeah, and, and Alv establishes herself as a political player in the north, while her son, Thorstein the Red, he grows into manhood and begins fighting for power in Scotland. Right, now we're zipping forward decades at a time here because that's, well, that's exactly what the saga's doing. Saga's far more interested in just names than yep. storytelling yep. at this stage of the game. You know, it, and it might sound like we're summarizing a crowded chapter or two, but really, all of this is just covered in a single brief paragraph, which to now, me is disappointing. Yeah, an exciting paragraph, but it does sort of skip over the middle part of Al's life. Yeah. Thorstein the Red uh, strikes up an alliance with Jarl Sigurth of Orkney, and the two of them fight a military campaign back and forth across the north of Scotland. Uh, eventually... Uh, they succeed in commanding tribute for uh, from about half of Scotland, and all of this seems to be going rather well. Cue ominous bagpipes. At the, uh, ominous bagpipes. Where does very ominous? Something like this. Uh, very nice. Very ominous. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, to the soundtrack of menacing bagpipes, uh, we can imagine a montage of Scots lords meeting in secret and plotting on the life of this Hiberno Norse interloper. Mm. We don't know exactly what they decided on as a plan, but it was a good one. Thorstein the Red was killed in an ambush sometime in the 880s. Right, so when we pick up the story, Alv's now an older woman who's taken her place as matriarch of her family. Her father, Kettle, has also died, of old age, presumably. Now she loses her son. Mm -hmm. But in losing a son, she also gains a gaggle of grandchildren. And so she takes on the responsibility and the right of finding good matches for Thorstein's many children. Yeah, it's seven kids mm-hmm. altogether, or at least seven kids the saga author tells right. us about. There are six daughters and one son. That's a lot son. of children, but as we see, Alv's pretty good at taking control of a situation. Um, now, once her son dies, Alv decides that her fortunes would be better in Iceland, where her siblings and extended family are. So she has a ship, a mm-hmm. Nor, made in secret. And once it's ready, she leaves with her family and with her followers and servants. So and this is an interesting thing. And again, it's all just mm-hmm. one paragraph and it's all really quick. Uh, but it says she builds the ship in secret. Yeah, she does. And so a fair question to ask is why? You know, all that seems to be well off. And it's not like this is a spur of the moment decision. Um, it might seem like there's no threat to her or her mm-hmm. family because there's not a specific right. threat mentioned. So I think we have to tease out why is she trying to hide that she's planning to leave until she's well, ready to go. Well, that's a very good go. question. I mean, I think there are a few things we can look at. Uh, for starters, there might very well be dangers that the saga isn't explicitly mentioning, right? As you said before we started recording, right? It does say that she's in a hostile situation, uh, which is sort of a very kind of yep. broad-based way of saying that there's danger. Um, and we might wonder, I don't know, if she wants to avoid tr- running into trouble with her family's enemies while trying to leave the Hebrides with as much wealth as she can cram into the ship. I think that uh, that has a lot to do with this this idea of she's going to gather as much wealth yeah. as she can. Um, one thing that the saga makes clear is that the Scots and um, the Norwegian uh, components, 
they had peace mm-hmm. for a while that was established, but the Scots eventually push back right. and rebel. So I think the situation she finds herself in is potentially hostile. Right. And she needs right. to get so out of she's, town. Just she's liquidating as her assets, and of course, she can do that more effectively if it isn't known that she's determined to leave. Right? She's going to get a better price right. for things. She's got to avoid, uh, but also she's going to not have yeah. to worry about people trying to intercept her before she can get out of the country. Mm-hmm. Or she's considering how many people she can fit onto a ship safely, and doesn't want a bunch of extra people showing up with suitcases on launching day. <laughs> Yeah, so she well, she takes a lot of people. She does, um, and she she bundles everyone onto her stealth ship and uh, sets sail for Iceland. Well, eventually, she makes a few stops along the way. She spends a short while in Orkney, where she marries her granddaughter Groa to the son of Earl Turf Einar. Mm-hmm. And the groom, you'll be happy to hear, is someone we've met before. Skull Splitter. Yes, way to ruin the build up. It's Thorfinn Skull Splitter. <laughs> Uh, and help aside from roping in an in-law with one of the most metal names in all the sagas, this also mm-hmm. means that Ald's bloodlines will now count the Earls of Orkney among them. Yeah, and that's a hell of a good get for the family. Yeah. The second stop is less exciting in this saga, but still rather important because the ship stops in the Pharaohs mm-hmm. and Ald arranges the marriage of her granddaughter, Olaf. Olaf becomes the matriarch of the Gotuskeki people. Yep who dominate the pharaohs and appear extensively in the Ferenga saga, which one day we will do. Yeah. We will get to the Ferenga saga, and I Someday. promise yep. that we will talk to uh, Harry Johnson uh, about that one when we get there. Absolutely. Uh, so at this point, essentially, Ald is Johnny Appleseeding her way across the Northern Islands, planting granddaughters to grow political dynasties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do the uh, people outside of America know who Johnny Appleseed is? Uh, I've always wondered that. Maybe? Uh, Let us know. Uh, Johnny Appleseed is a semi-historical figure based on a man named John Chapman, who was a guy who traveled around America in the early 19th century. Uh, Chapman established apple orchards across hundreds of miles of the country. He was a Mm -hmm. bit of an eccentric, uh, walked around uh, barefoot a lot of the time, um, and uh, decided that what the frontier needed was not apples for eating or for cooking, but these small bitter, almost inedible apples that were used to make alcoholic cider. Yeah, so what you're uh, saying is that he planted the seeds for literally tens of thousands of people to get drunk. Oh, no wonder he became a legend. Super eccentric guy, but really interesting. Uh, He was from Massachusetts, by the way, which is the only reason I know anything about him. Hmm. Um, uh, A rarely known fact, did you know that he's a great-great-great-grandfather of Tracy Chapman, the singer-songwriter? You're kidding. Really? I did am. you make that Let's up? Let's continue. I you did. did. Well done. So let's get back to the saga. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense. That's, Come on. you know. Um, all right. So cheers, uh, Mr. Appleseed and the Chapman family. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so there is no once, Chapman family, uh, however, since, uh, by the way, factually in history, uh, Chapman uh, remained chaste his entire life. He was a Swedenborgian. And because Swedenborgians <laughs> are discouraged from having sex outside of marriage and he had no interest in marrying, he just never produced children. Uh, for, well, I mean, I don't, why do you know all of this stuff about... <laughs> Told you, uh, he's from nearby. Johnny Appleseed, but uh, second of all, why did you fall so quickly for the Tracy Chapman ruse if you know that he never had sex? <laughs> because there might be some kind of scandal I don't know about. <laughs> oh, okay. I know the all official right. story also, from his homestead, but, you know, there's there's other versions of his life, I'm sure. So, uh, yeah, so we were supposed to talk about Lex on the side right, of this that. episode. Um, 
So Alv has finished planting granddaughters in the islands. Mm-hmm. Uh, she and her five remaining unmarried descendants now sail to Iceland with their crew. And when they get within sight of land, Alv throws her high seat pillars overboard. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really mention her doing this, but she does find them later. Right. So she must have done that. Um, and like any prominent settler, uh, she's doing this so that she can allow the gods or perhaps even her Christian god mm-hmm. uh, to show her where her new home should be, where is the most blessed site for the building of this new uh, new life. Right, right. Because, you know, as you've said, some of, some of the texts do say that she's Christian at this point. Uh, but clearly this yeah. is kind of a mixed ritual and one that I think has more secular connotations even than religious ones. Right? It's about being able to claim mm-hmm. land for yourself, not necessarily about which god guides you there. Um, and right. in the past, we've said that some people would be able to manipulate that ritual to gain the best land. Right? Presumably, any good skipper should be able to read the currents well enough to know where the pillars are likely to end up being beached. Well, Alv is undeniably a formidable force on land, but she's not a professional sailor. She <laughs> loses the high sea pillars, and then her ship crashes on the shore. Yes, yes, um... Now, in the meantime, she decides to spend a winter with one of her mm-hmm. brothers. And so first she takes 20 men from her retinue well, and dries travels off. to her. Okay, <laughs> she does. Uh, she's going to dry off um, and then start walking over to her brother Helgi Bjolin's farm to uh, maybe stay with him. Right. And as you said, she takes 20 men because Al travels in style. Yes. Um, and, well... Her brother, Helgi, is as surprised as anyone else. Mm -hmm. Uh, He rides out to greet her and welcomes her to his home, offering lodging for the winter for her and just nine of her followers. But she's brought almost that many grandchildren. (laughs) Yeah, and Al's not happy with her brother's offer. Uh, She says, I hardly expected such stinginess from you. Perhaps I'll find a warmer welcome with Björn. And so she turns on her heel and goes to look for her other brother. Is that the voice you've given out? Uh... I won't have to do it for very Good point. long, but she is an older woman. Uh, considered in the context of sagas and the culture of medieval Icelandic hospitality, that reaction actually does make some sense. Uh, Helgi, like well. all the children of Kettle Flatnose, has set himself up as a leader among men, right? a chieftain in effect. And that comes with responsibilities as well as privileges. Significant displays of wealth, ostentatious displays of wealth through generosity, is one of the ways a person signals that they are a chieftain. Helgi's mm-hmm. level of open-handedness here is not commensurate with his self-aggrandizing status as a prominent landowner. Agreed, but I think we can also acknowledge that Alv is showing up unannounced with dozens of followers. Expecting her brother to suddenly have a small hotel's worth of resources ready to put at her disposal, that's a lot to ask. Oh, she's not asking. No, and he's not offering. <laughs> Instead, she travels to Björn's farm in uh, Breidefjord. Now, Bjorn the Easterner hears that Alv is on her way, and he rides out with a bunch of men to greet her, and he gives Alv the reception that she was hoping for. He invites her and all of her companions to come and stay with him for the winter. And as the narration tells us, uh, Bjorn knew well his sister's grand style. Mm-hmm. Now, Alv is obviously delighted with this and thanks him for his generosity. And then, it has to be said, takes full advantage of it. Uh, Bjorn is a wealthy man, and he wants to burnish that reputation for open-handedness that we talked about. So, Alv and her people lack for nothing that winter. Uh, And in the spring, she sets out fully stocked to seek somewhere to set up a home of her own. And Mm -hmm. things start out pretty tamely. She has breakfast with her crew on a promontory. She loses a comb at a bayside campsite. You know, the usual things. Uh 
I mean, I'll, I'll play along here. Why do we care about breakfast and combs? Well, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, Andy. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Are combs the most important personal grooming tool of the day? <laughs> Top five, definitely. Uh, now, these stories are early examples of one of this saga author's favorite side projects, which is an ongoing preoccupation with toponymastics. Yeah, that's place names for those of you who don't sleep with the Oxford English Dictionary under your pillow. <laughs> hey, if drifting off to sleep on a bed of words is wrong, I don't want to know what right is. <laughs> Which is why I don't sleep with the R volume. Oh, God. All right. So, place names. The place where they had breakfast is called Dogverdenes, uh, which means breakfast point. Mm-hmm. Uh, dog, day, ver, dar, ness. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you know, what I like is that you clearly started off thinking you were going to be able to pull that one off. <laughs> And then, and then slowly bailed out. <laughs> I, I know dog means uh, day and nest means point. Yep. So. <laughs> uh, um, that's funny. I mean, you, you start to get a sense of, of where uh, uh, Leif the Lucky got his bad uh, naming talents. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very little. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, let's not forget the place where all uh, lost her comb is called Comsness. Uh, which, it, as you can probably guess, means comb point. Um, both of these places are going to show up later in the saga as locations of important right. events. So, so remember Dogverdones and Right, Comsness. so the author's just sort of shuffling them into position early in the narrative. Yeah, like he does all right. the other people. Yeah. A lot of these early chapters of Lockstall's saga, I think, really are about set dressing, right? even more so than some of the other sagas. Mm-hmm. I can't agree with the scholars who find this early section unnecessary, uh, it's a little longer than it needs to be, maybe, but it's totally necessary. Hmm. So, Alv continues her travels, uh, claiming choice chunks of land for herself everywhere mm-hmm. she goes, until finally she comes across her now somewhat waterlogged high seat pillars at the head of Homsfjord. And so she sets up her home in a grand style at a farmstead she calls Hvam, which is a very yes, familiar place to uh, us. And we'll get to see the other side of an important exchange that happens with that farm later on. Uh, now, yeah. once things are set yeah. up to her standards, Al sets about establishing herself as a leader in the area. And her chief tactic is the one we've seen others use. And especially we saw uh, Skotlagrim Kveldolfsson in Ale Saga use this. Yeah, I thought like of the same she, scene. She brings her own followers and then she rewards those loyal followers with gifts of land in the area, essentially building herself a constituency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's also got a powerful tool in her many, many yes. grandchildren that yes. can be married we'll talk about off. about that in a second. So Alv gives several parcels of land to men who then go on to start their own fairly respectable lineages. So we should take a second just to look at a few of those. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, do we need to, though? Yeah, we do. Uh, I mean, this saga is one of the nexus points of all the family connections in the entire saga corpus. Okay. And this chapter, chapter six, is doing a lot of heavy lifting and establishing links among the settlers in the generations whose stories make up quite a few other sagas. Uh, Njal saga, Erbridge's saga, Gisla saga, the Greenlander sagas, and so on and on. All right. Uh, you had me at nexus points. Let's do oh, it. Oh, well. Uh, so to take one example, there's her follower, Horth, who establishes himself at Hordadal. There's going to be a lot of those. Um, he's the father of Asbjorn the Wealthy, who marries the daughter of Skeggy of Midfjord. Uh, he's also the grandfather of Ingebjörg, who marries Ilugi the Black, and thus he is the great-grandfather of Hermund and Gunlaug Serpentum. This is the brief version. That's almost exactly what the saga says. Yeah, no, I'm not looking, I'm not asking anybody to memorize this. 
Uh, it's important evidence for Al's status as a founder of Iceland. Now, if I may continue. <clears throat> she also grants <laughs> land to Erp, the son of Earl Meldun. Uh, and Erp's daughter Haldis will eventually <laughs> marry one of Al's great-grandsons, Alf of Dalir. Uh, she also gives a man named Sokolf land, which becomes known as Sokolfsdal. She frees a Scottish slave, Hundi, and gives him Hundadal. Another freedman is Viffel, who gets Viffelsdal. Uh, there's a definite pattern to these names. Right, it's more toponymy, right? This yeah. is about placing the story in the local geography, as well as providing explanations for various place names around Helmsford. Uh, but yeah, it gets a little predictable. It does, yeah. So this one is worth mentioning. Uh, All's land grant to Viffel is featured in the oh, yeah. opening chapters of Eric the Red Saga as well. Uh, Viffel isn't especially important on his own, but one of his sons, uh, Thorbjorn Viffelson, becomes a friend of Eric, and his daughter, Gudrid Thorbjorn's daughter, is arguably the central figure of Eric's saga. Right. So at this point, Ald's established a secure position for herself, and her wanderings can come to an end. Yes. Um, so the saga has has given us the connections between all of these other sagas through all mm-hmm. of these other families. And now uh, she can start getting serious about marrying off her grandchildren to further cement these ties. Excellent. Part three. She wants to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. No, wait, reverse that. I mean, at some point, I just don't even understand what you're trying to do. <laughs> It'll become clear in a few minutes. Now, all the strategy for finding husbands for her granddaughters is usually pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. What she wants are connections to every important family that she can find. And she's willing to wheel and deal to get what she's after. She's already set up the pharaohs and the Orkneys, and now she's going to turn her attention to Iceland. You know, I feel like we're taking this woman who's famously among the most impressive people of the settlement generation and we're kind of turning her into like a homesteading octogenarian of the wild west <laughs> it's like an older female al swearingen with a hockey team's worth of granddaughters in tow well she's the rootinous tootinous motherfucking grandma in all of fucking iceland <laughs> i appreciate that attempt but now you're about making her half al swearingen and half yosemite samantha uh just get on I with didn't... the weddings <laughs> i didn't put on a voice no, rudeness tootinist. Oh, rudeness tootinist. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I was going for, you know, the West. And I believe in, in the Wild West of America, they say sure. rudeness and tootinist quite often. Possibly tootinist, yes. <laughs> Possibly motherfucker right. once in a while, too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, according to, to some shows, yes. Um, now, all of these grandchildren are from Thorstein the Red. So they are all Thorstein daughters. And one Thorstenson. Hang on to that one. Yes. Some of the marriages are just about putting out new branches of the family tree, but others are pretty important. Give us a for instance. Well, her third granddaughter, Thorgerd Thorstein's daughter, uh, she marries a man named Dalakol. And if that name sounds vaguely familiar, uh, though I don't think it will to most of you. Um, <laughs> wow. To the few that it does sound familiar to. Just actively uh, insulting our listeners now. I would never, I would never <laughs> insult our listeners. I'm a realist here. I see. So here, here, well, let's do a little experiment for, for all you listeners in your cars, on your bikes, as you're jogging, as you're doing dishes or whatever it is you're doing. Mm-hmm. If you remember the name Dalakol, uh, if that name sounds familiar, raise your hand. <laughs> Not if you're driving. <laughs> you see, you see, John? Oh, you don't trust them to drive with one hand? Fine. I mean, depends on whether that's the hand they lift, they lift in the air. 
Well, all right. Now, if I think I proved my point, anyways. <laughs> if the name is, <laughs> if the name sounds vaguely familiar, it's because they are the parents of Hoskuld Dalakolson, the father of Holgerth Longlegs in Njal's Saga. Now, how many of you had that? Mm-hmm. Hmm? I did. And Hoskuld, Hoskuld. And his half-brother, Hrut, are going to be major players in the next couple of episodes of this saga. But not today. And what about the others? Well, the fourth Thorstein daughter, uh, Osk, uh, marries a grandson of Thorolf Mosterbeard, who's the other major settlement figure in the region, who's been basically washed out of the first part of this saga. Right. Um, She has a son named Thorstein the Black, who's credited with adding Leap Week to the Icelandic calendar year. Mm -hmm. Uh, which I think is really interesting little addition to the saga there. Um, Now, Thorhild, the fifth sister, has a son named Alf of Dalar, who married Erp's daughter, who you talked about a little bit ago. Mm -hmm. They are credited as the ancestors of the Reykjanes Icelanders. And the sixth sister, Vigdis, is the matriarch of the people of Holthi in Eyjafjord. That is quite a list. Well done getting through that. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it, w- it was more of a trial than the listeners possibly know. <laughs> <laughs> and again, no one should be obligated to remember all that, but it is no. an important feature right. of the it's, saga. It's important that the information exists, uh, not just because it sets up Alf's importance as a settlement figure. Uh, it also, I think, sets up a matriarchal map of Icelandic settlement. Yeah. Right? Uh, these women are not only named, which they often aren't in other sagas, but they're the connective tissue and the power brokers among the different peoples of the region. Mm-hmm. The bones of this saga are women, not men, which really makes it almost unique among the surviving stories. Absolutely. It's one of the most fascinating things about the opening of this saga that we are given what is typically the male story of a oh. guy who leaves Norway, travels around, it lands in Iceland, makes a name for himself makes uh, arranged marriages and things like that. Mm-hmm. Here, it's all from the women's perspective, and the right. woman is doing the same exact thing. Well, and what you end up seeing for is where that this... There's, this, there's this other kind of shadow genealogy that links together the families that might not be obviously connected in other sagas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. And one of the recurrent strands of critical interest in this saga, and deservedly so, is the centrality of women's stories to the text. And this first section does a lot to support that reading. Yeah. Now, hang on. Jump back to the fourth granddaughter for a second. Uh, Her son Thorsten introduces Leap Week, you said. Yeah. Leap Week might need a word of explanation. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, there's a note in the book that uh, basically explains all of this. But Mm -hmm. uh, the Icelandic calendar of the settlement age had exactly 364 days divided into 52 weeks. One less than ours. So we have 365. And that's my Andy math for the day. Um, Very good. (laughs) Now, that meant that each year the calendar lost 30 hours instead of the modern calendar's six hours. So to make up that time, we have leap day every four years. Uh, They had to add a whole week every six years. Oh, well, thanks for that, Thorsten the Black. Yeah. Uh, All right. So Alv has married off all of her granddaughters, has finished weaving her web, but she's still got one young man hanging around the place. Yes, the youngest of Thorstein the Red's children is the only boy, and his name is Olaf Feilam. Now, Ald has a special relationship with him because, well, he's the baby of the family. Well, and and he's also, the only guy. Right, and he's also the only boy, yes, which makes him yes. the easiest grandchild to make an heir. Ugh, I'm going to say that again because I fucked that up. Uh, he's also the only boy, which, of course, 
in Iceland is going to make him the easiest grandchild to make her heir. Yeah. You're thinking just like Alv, I see. Hmm. <laughs> uh, but Alv is still planning on getting Olaf married, and her time's running short. Uh, she's quite old by this time, and she knows she needs to start making arrangements for the future. Yeah. She tells Olaf one day, It's come to my mind, my grandson, that you should think of settling down in marriage. My, I agree, Grandma. And I'm preparing to look to you for advice on the matter. Because you're such a busybody, always arranging marriages for every goddamn person. <laughs> such a good boy. It'll be best, I think, to hold your wedding feast here at the end of summer, when it is easiest to provide everything we need. I expect that our friends will attend in great numbers, for this will be the last feast I will hold. Well, I, I would never turn down such a generous offer, but the only wife I will accept is one that will rob you of neither your property or your authority. So, at this point, Alv's like an elder statesman, right? She's wrapping up her affairs and making decisions that will secure for Olaf the dominance (laughs) that she's built for herself. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting, the parallels with Erbegis Saga, because Mm -hmm. uh, Thorolf Mosterbeard takes this role in that Yes. Um, He's the distributor of land. He's the arranger of things. He's the arranger of order on the island. Only the emphasis there is on legal order and authority. Mm. Here, we're talking more about marriages because that's the realm that Alf can uh, can really occupy. Right. That's a really good point, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And on Olaf's side, he seems to be honestly fond of his grandmother. Mm -hmm. But he's also got to be aware that with Alf nearing the end of her life, he's about to inherit everything. Yeah. So his promise to only take a wife who accepts all this primacy is a nice touch. But he's not going to have to worry about it for long, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But I agree that there's no suggestion of anything calculated going on. Right? I mean, these two honestly love each other and both accept that Alv is the older uh, one and the one in charge. And so yeah. everything is quickly arranged with Olaf to marry a woman named Alftis. Uh, and the wedding feast is announced for the end of summer. And as Alv predicted... Many people accept the invites and show up with big retinues. Including both of her brothers, who are somehow still alive. Mm. And and one of those brothers, Helgi Bjolan, brings a large retinue, uh, which is presumably a way to test his sister's generosity after he was accused of being stingy with her. <laughs> See, a little pettiness that goes on in families. Yeah. Uh, and all of her granddaughters who are in Iceland come to the wedding as well, uh, along with their people. husbands and in-laws in tow. Yeah, not everyone can make it, though, because she invites some people who live quite far away. Uh, I assume that includes her two granddaughters back in Orkney and the Pharaohs. But even so, this is going to be an expensive party. Well, I mean, it's her only grandson getting married. And Alv also suspects there's going to be a second major event at the gathering, which we'll talk about in a second. But yeah, this is a big bash. Uh, still, uh, Jesse Bayak actually points out, uh, Alv's decision to hold Olaf's wedding feast in late summer is because, as she says, that is the easiest time to get the necessary provisions. So even the affluent in Icelandic society were forced to plan around potential shortages of food or drink. Yeah. Now, so the day of the wedding arrives, and Alv stays in bed a long time to rest. But by the time the people are arriving, she's there to greet everyone personally. Mm-hmm. The first day of the party is a big success, and everyone's having a great time. There's plenty to drink, plenty to eat, and no strife of any kind to mar the occasion. Right, and Alv sits quietly and regally in a high seat and just enjoys the day. Uh, when evening comes and the last guests have arrived, she stands and calls for attention. I thank you, 
my friends and kinsmen, for showing your affection for me by making such a long journey. And on this occasion I call upon you, my brothers Björn and Helgi, and my other kinsmen and friends, as witnesses to my words. This farm, with all the furnishings you see around you, I hereby hand over to the ownership of my grandson Olaf. Now, no one really knows what to say, which isn't surprising since this speech has echoes of Bilbo's speech at his 111th birthday party. <laughs> but Al's the kind of person who does what she wants, so they all affirm her words. And then she slips on a ring and vanishes from the high seat. <laughs> nope. <laughs> That's right. Uh, no, she pulls herself to her feet, stands tall, and asks that everyone continue to enjoy themselves in whatever way they see fit. Which sounds a bit like Grandma's telling people to get plastered, because she is. Uh, she's described by the author in this moment as looking tall and heavy set. She then walked briskly along the hall, and people commented on her dignified bearing. Mm. Uh, and she passes into her bedchamber and out of the hall. The party continues, with drinks being passed around, and toasts to the married couple, and to Alv going on well into the night. And at some point in the night, with the sounds of her successful legacy-building life filtering through the closed door, Alv leans back on her pillows and dies quietly, and, one assumes, happily. Now, her death is discovered the next morning by Olaf, who comes to wake her. And then has to wake her, so to speak. Uh, yeah. Um, he, tells, <laughs> he tells the entire gathering of Alv's death, and everyone's first reaction is to be impressed by how well she handled everything and how well she'd carried herself the night before. Hmm. The feast becomes a combined wedding and funeral feast, with bride ale and funeral ale being drunk one after the other. And so it becomes obvious that Alv even planned for this, and that there's enough provisions for both events. She's quite a woman. Yes, and on the final day of the feast, Alv's body is taken to the burial mound which has been prepared for her. It doesn't actually say that she'd arranged the burial mound to be built or anything like that, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's a, a, a little hill with an opening back in the backyard uh, there somewhere. I would be surprised. Uh, that's kind of a weird thing to have going on during the wedding plan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now we're going to need ale for about 300 people for a week. Enough meat for each evening. Gonna need to build up the stores of firewood. Oh, and let's have a honking big burial mound dug at the far end of the South Field. You know, as one does at weddings. Yes. Well, either way, it's all ready for her, and it's mm -hmm. a burial befitting all the status. She's laid into a ship, which is laid into the mound, and the ship is stacked with rich treasures and status symbols before the mound is closed up, which speaks right. to this saga's insistence on all of being uh, a pagan rather than a Christian. Um, right. I think uh, that's right. Uh, it's also, it's a burial for a chieftain. Yes. Uh, right. It's not just a pagan burial. It's a pagan burial for a leader. Uh, mm -hmm. Hell, in most contexts, this is a burial for a king. I mean, it sounds a bit like the larger excavations in various Anglo-Scandinavian contexts, right? Uh, Sutton Hoo or Burka, that level of thing. Yeah. Well, all this being set up as uh, not really as a queen of Iceland, but not far from it either. Mm -hmm. uh, she's being buried in a style that really doesn't get surpassed in the sagas that I can think of, except maybe, uh, you know, Thorolf uh, Mosterbeard entering the the, hall, uh, the halls of Helgafell, right? Right. Although it's even then, the treasures that she's being buried with, right? The, yeah. The, uh, the, 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 just the sheer scale of her burial. 
Yeah, yeah. And her burial, which is probably being somewhat exaggerated for effect by the author, it's it's part of uh, of legend, you know? Right, right. Uh, so Olive is gone, and the, the rest of this saga is really going to be playing out the various dynasties and power dynamics that she put into place. Um, the first of those is Olaf's gaining of the farm at Vom, which becomes the seat for his chieftaincy. Olaf becomes an important man of his generation, and lives out his entire life at his grandmother's farm. Now, Olaf and Alftis have a son and three daughters, all of whom also are going to have important legacies. Uh, one of the sons is called Thord Bellower, and you might know his name as one of the most famous of Iceland's law speakers. And as my thingman, obviously, which I know you wouldn't leave that out. I wouldn't dream of it, no. Um, uh, <laughs> two, two of the daughters, uh, Helga and Thordis, make good marriages and also produce important families. Uh, Helga, for example, is the mother of Jothrith Gunnar's daughter, who married Tunguad for a while before marrying Thorsten Egelson. And both of whom are my thingmen, by the way. So. Yes, yes. We're all very mm. impressed. And the oldest daughter, Thora Olaf's daughter, marries Cor- Thorsten Codbiter, uh, one of the sons of Thorolf Mosterbeard. And this is a family line that runs through a lot of sagas. Um, yeah. She's the mother of Thorgrim Gothi and Bork the Stout and Thordis. And through Thorgrim, who is the man who was assassinated by Gisli Sirson, she's the grandmother of Thorgrim Thorgrimson, better known as Snorri Gothi. My thingman, incidentally. Well, I mean, Gisli's one of mine, I believe, so... Yeah, I think what we're establishing here is that this is a very, very important family tree. We've both been picking fruit off this one for years now. Yes, and we have all to uh, thank for all of this, I Mm -hmm. suppose. Um, And that's more or less the end of what we might think of as Old Stouter, uh, the beginning of this saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next episode is going to pick up with a shift in the focus to Olaf's sister Thorger and her son Hoskuld and her son from a second marriage, uh, Rut Herjolfsson. Right, great. And the next section's fun. But before we wrap up here, there's something else I want to do. Oh. Summons to the thing. Alv the deep-minded. See, I'm sorry. I thought we were done with this yeah, episode. Yeah, not quite. What, what? Um, remember I said back in the intro I had a plan for dealing with the ridiculous number of people in this saga? Oh, that, you've said a lot of things, though. I can't be expected to keep track of all of them. <laughs> just as I can't be expected to keep track of all these families and people right. that we well, just talked about. Well, I did. I did say this. And so what we're going to do is provide a slightly more in-depth character study for one person from the saga in each episode. We are going to do that. I'm so excited yep. that we will do uh, that. Well, I'm going to take the first one to give you time to prepare. Uh-huh. And you've chosen uh, Un slash all the, the deep-minded. Of course I have. I mean, she's without question oh, the architect behind choice. most of the families who end up being important in the rest of the saga. She's pretty mm-hmm. well-known even outside of this story. And she's the main figure that we talked about today. We had to start with her. All right. Uh, I already know a fair amount about her, so I'm going to ask you to impress me. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so let's start by going back to that physical description of her in her old age. She's tall okay. and imposing even in her final days. She's broad and heavy set, carries herself with great dignity, and is almost regal in her appearance and speech. And that is old age. That's the description of her on the night that she dies, after hosting a wedding of one of her seven adult grandchildren. All somewhere well north of 60 at this point, mm-hmm. maybe probably north of 70. Yeah, and she's still commanding the room. 
Mm-hmm. As a younger woman, she was described as strong-willed and capable, and presumably was also still tall and broad. Uh, now, let's look at her bona fides. Uh, Olive is one of the most ubiquitous figures of the stories of the Icelandic settlement. I mean, we've already seen her in Njal Saga, Greta Saga, Eric the Red Saga, uh, Ervidja Saga, uh, and several others. In the Book of Settlements, she's one of the four most prominent settlers of Iceland, as identified by Ari the Learned. Uh, and she's the only woman in that group. Already, she's pretty impressive, and her character is quite consistent across the sagas. Absolutely. Uh, whenever we meet her or hear a version of her story, Alv is presented as an open-handed but strong-willed woman who controls her own destiny and dominates her extended family and descendants. She takes offense at any slight to her status. She believes in the bonds of blood and marriage. She commands loyalty and rewards it generously. Sounds like a chieftain. Yeah. Because that is exactly what chieftains do in the sagas. Right. And as we said, that's essentially what she is. Yeah. It's definitely the model for her character, I think. Uh, look at that sequence where she claims the entirety of Falmsford uh, for, for herself. Uh, and then she parcels out the choicest bits of land to her followers and her grandchildren. She's setting herself up a nice little Godor there. Yeah. Uh, and there are two things working against her. Uh, first, and most importantly, the chieftaincies of the settlement age tend to be more or less informal. Uh, formal Gothorths are more a product of the 10th century rather than the 9th. Uh, once you have the all thing and you have sort of the organization of the assemblies, you need chieftains to run them. Um, mm-hmm. Second, as a woman, she would likely face some skepticism about establishing herself as a political leader. Yeah, I mean, chieftains, chieftaincies can be held by women, although it, it, it's unusual. And it's generally because they've taken over a position after the death of their husband or other close relative and there's not a, a male available. Right, but Alf kind of ignores those expectations. Uh, Garcia Perez sums this up pretty well. Alva's character is particularly of interest because she's a woman. And though she does not break with class values, it can be said that she subverts the gender values of the time by behaving with the same freedom and audacity as a man. So, in other words, she plays a conservative game class-wise by embodying all the desirable qualities of an open-handed aristocrat and by insisting on being treated in accordance with her station. Like when she snubs her brother Helgi for not inviting her to bring her entire retinue to stay at his place. Yes. Uh, in, in other words, uh, for not extending the courtesy he ought to extend to a leading landowner and public figure. Who's also his sister. Yeah, well, sibling relationships can be complicated. Right. Well, the point is, Alv's on board with the class system that sets certain privileges and duties on aristocratic shoulders. Mm-hmm. But she's deliberately ignoring the disenfranchisement that that same class system usually inflicts on women. Hmm. Essentially, by by playing the game according to the expectations and parameters set for men, rather than self-limiting to the role of an upper-class woman. Yes. But I think Alv's actually mm. more complex than Garcia Perez is even suggesting. She doesn't just overcome the societal limitations on her gender. She sidesteps them by playing the game the same way men do. She's populated the immediate area with her own freedmen and descendants, as you said, very much like Thorolf Mosterbeard does in this region in Erbija Saga. Yeah, and we, we've seen others do this as well. Uh, we talked about Scott Legrim as a good example, mm-hmm. who sets himself up and insulates himself by giving local land all around his own property, uh, giving that land to friends and followers. Right, and Scott Legrim's a good analog, since part of what he was doing was surrounding himself with loyalist berserks and troll-blooded men, right? Men who were like him and so would look to him for leadership. Alv is doing sort of the same thing with her land, installing people 
former servants of hers uh, who have been primed to think of her as the boss. And yeah. sometimes also as grandma. Uh, <laughs> Al's more than a chieftain. She's deliberately establishing herself as a matriarch. In her lands, what Al says goes. Yeah. I mean, she's a compelling figure, even in a literary tradition that emphasizes dominant personalities. And it's it almost seems like the author couldn't resist her stories. She's How do you too mean? fascinating. What do you mean? Well, I mean, quite a few people have pointed this out, but it's not like we actually needed all this entire biography at the start of this song, oh, right? Yes. You know, she's mentioned elsewhere, uh, especially in Lanamabolk and in Erbige Saga and in a lot of other sagas. The author would have been content with just identifying her as a person who settles the region and then moving on to her grandson Olaf's story because that's where the story really begins. Right. But her story in those other sources is sort of broken up. We just don't yeah. get a continuous mini-saga of Al's kettle daughter anywhere else. Uh, in yeah. Lanama book, she's introduced and then she drops out for a while. And then she turns up again when she marries Olaf the White and then she's out a bit again. And then we pick her up again with Olaf's death. Her story is told, but not told as a single coherent narrative. This author has turned a set of informational passages from other texts into a fuller story. And could we really do without her? Because she does a lot to set the hard drive for the region. Well, I mean, really, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. A lot of that information could be told in a short paragraph or two. I hate it when you devil's advocate. Well, hey, legal representation is the cornerstone of a functioning democracy, John. Is this podcast a democracy? All right. But yeah, yeah. Just for a second so I can actually advocate that, here. See? No democracy here. Go ahead, you devil, you. Okay. I mean, I've got a, I've got quite a few things to say about this, but I'm going to focus in on one thing for right now. Mm-hmm. All this only really irreplaceable role is as the ancestor of Kjartan and Botli uh, a few generations further on. As Carol Clover says... That relationship hardly justifies the narrative detail devoted to all the story, and in particular to her remarkable death scene. The author seems to tell her story for its own sake, mm. Clover says. And the result is a, a semi-independent miniature biography, but I think it's important to note with this that we don't really get a biography of her as a character. Mm-hmm. What we get is a biography of a woman who establishes uh, bonds of kinship marriages throughout the northern world we don't really get to see her as a character until that death scene but i guess my question there would be isn't that because that means we're seeing alf as she preferred to be seen right i mean this is not a person who encourages close confidences and sort of an inner circle she keeps her own counsel she makes her own decisions seeing her kind of at one remove like that seeing her at arm's length is Mm. kind of the way She's presented in the saga as appearing to other people in the saga. I mean, that's all convenient and easy to say when we're talking about texts that are written so many years, hundreds of years after uh, she existed. <laughs> right? I mean. So we don't really know her. What we right. know is that she made these – she helped to establish these relationships. That's the legacy that she leaves. That's the thing that this saga is trying to highlight. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is that we have the story of a woman making these moves, whereas in most of the sagas that we've read, it's the men who arrange the marriages, the men who uh, establish these these connections. Right. But I would also and say those are always political moves. Right. But I would also say, you know, if this were a male character, would we be talking about not getting to know enough of her inner story? Right. I mean, is no. that is that the kind of thing that is expected more for a female character than for a male character? I, I think the fact that we are talking about about what she's doing highlights how rarely we see women right. 
taking this kind of an active political role in the shaping of the landscape sure. and the political landscape, even if she's not an active participant in it, because I think that's that's appropriate to say here. She arranges these marriages, but mm-hmm. as a chieftain, you would expect to see her active in political decisions, legal decisions. Um, she's not really. Right. Um, all we see is the arrangements. So um, that's an important ultimately, aspect of her character. Ultimately, is Alvin this saga for narratively compelling purposes or because she's just too interesting a person to leave out? I mean, it's important to understand, we're talking about this at the end of an episode where she's been the main figure in a lot of ways, but we're less than 10% of the way through this saga, and she's gone. Yeah, Alt's part in Laxdala really is pretty compact lengthwise. Um, But let me me drop my devil's advocacy here. Uh, The author knows how to pack a lot into a few chapters, even if it's mostly a string of names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and even in, in this more fleshed-out version of Alv's story, if we want to call it a fleshed-out version, um, there's still that saga-like ebb and flow of plot. Just right. the hint of it here. Right. And I, yeah, I take your point that you know we don't really get an internal sort of sense of her. But um, everything that happens makes this a very self-contained story, right? Um, but I don't read it as that being the entire story, right? Uh, Alv's story, her character, sets into motion a set of expectations for this saga that are paid off in the rest of the story. Right? As we said earlier, the main thing is that we're primed to expect the women of this saga to insist on an active role in their lives and to have that activity treated as worthy of the saga's time and attention. Mm-hmm. Thematically, that's important to setting a tone going forward. And that's before we think in terms of her importance as a link to the settlement era for later writers. Mm-hmm. Alv is the ancestor of entire swaths of later Icelandic aristocracy, including Ari the Learned, the mm. guy who made her an important figure in the Book of Settlements. Sure. Uh, which does mean we have to, I mean, well, sort of the flip side of Alv being presented as a chieftain-like mover and shaker is that we should consider Alv's story the same way we would any other chieftains. Right? It's most likely being colored by the politics and stories of several hundred years, and then being shaped by descendants with a vested interest in presenting her in a certain way. Yeah, that's the name of the game for saga writers. Even history itself is about honor and reputation. People are always people. Sad but true. Uh, The point is that it's possible to consider Alv's story in a less flattering light. Uh, Remember that story about Alv building a secret ship to leave the Hebrides, right? We speculated a little bit about what might be going Uh on there. Well, Gunnar Carlsson provides a sort of revisionist version of Alv's story in his book, The Settlement of Iceland. It's something of a thought exercise. As he puts it, Alv's story can also be read as, Olaf the White is killed in Ireland. His widow, Alv, flees to the Hebrides with her son, Thorsten the Red. Thorsten's successful career is cut short when he's killed in battle in Scotland. His mother then escapes once more, fleeing to her brothers in Iceland. See, that is definitely less complimentary. Right. She's always running away. Right. But it's not much different in the reported facts. Um, Right. With almost any saga figure, the subtleties of why and how are more important than what someone's doing. Uh, Alv's story is presented as the self-determined life of a strong-willed matriarch in Luxdala. And so it sets one sort of precedent for the rest of the story. If it had been told Carlson's way a very different story would begin. Maybe one about refugees scrambling for safety in the Norwegian diaspora, maybe something else, but almost certainly something more focused on male experience. Yeah. So Alf's agency in the story is a function of narrative necessity? Is that what you're arguing? Well, yes, but that's not my point. Uh, My point is that the Alf that we get in this saga, and pretty much any other time we find her in the sagas, 
Alv is singled out as a matriarch and a strong-minded leader, in part because of the fortunes of her descendants, right, as you said. But the flip side of that is that her descendants' chances of success would have been significantly improved by the machinations of a clever and iron-willed great-great-great-grandma. Hmm. So what do we have here at the end, John? Alv is presented as almost an archetype of the fair but hard-dealing Icelandic settler. And she's given credit for establishing the shape of much of the region that her grandchildren and their grandchildren will eventually dominate. Exactly. Yeah, it's not surprising that she's one of the most memorable characters in this saga. Mm. All right. Okay. Um, so, uh, wow. We got to wrap this up now mm-hmm. uh, somehow awkwardly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, that should do it for episode one of Lax Dalla Saga. Yeah. It's certainly not the most narrative heavy uh, plot driven yeah. of our episodes on Lax Dalla Saga, but it's important to establish not only the names that we're going to be seeing in, in play, but the, the sociopolitical uh, footprint of all of and mm. all of these marriages yeah. that she's arranged. Yeah. Um, but okay. You Stick got, with uh, us, folks. This does, this does pick up. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, but John, do you want to do a quick rune sack? Ooh, a quick question. one if we have time for it. Okay. Uh, this one is actually uh, kind of apropos for what we've been talking about with Alv and her burial mount. Uh, it comes from Andrew McPherson. And he writes... Countless indeed are the stories in which a bold Gester, Aeth, or Gretcher goes down into a burial mound and there fights some undead freak for the chance at major riches. Mm. And every time this happens, I get confused. <laughs> How big are these burial chambers? Big enough for epic fights, to be sure, in most of these sagas. Big enough for ships sometimes. It seems like as soon as you go beneath the crust of the earth, all laws of space and proportion go out the window. Is there a historical basis for this, or is the audience just supposed to nod along with whatever the author says? Well, it's a very simple explanation, Andrew, uh, and thanks for writing in. The simple explanation is that um, for about three centuries, uh, from the 9th to the 12th century, Icelanders were all buried in Tardises. Uh, And so they were were much, much, yes. Uh, So they were much, much (laughs) bigger on the inside uh, than they are on the outside. (laughs) Um, yeah, I think that's probably right. Right. No, um, what's what's happening here is that we're dealing with the difference between um, sort of what we would call everyday space and then um, imaginative space. Uh, right? The imaginative space of these mounds treats the mound above ground as almost the tip of an iceberg, right? That That is merely the marking of the place where there is an underworld, right? Where there's an underground. Um, burials are frequently quite shallow, right? Which is one of the reasons why cairns and mounds get established. It's a way of protecting the body from the depredations of animals. Um, they pile up the stones on top of the body so that they can't be uh, attacked. Um, but the imagination then sort of peoples those mounds with kind of houses underground, right? Almost, almost in the same way that turf houses, right? The turf roof. Uh, stands over a large indoor space, but looks like part of the ground from outside. A mound is just a sort of small outcropping of rock coming out of the ground, but the imagined space is much larger inside. 
you could see that same kind of imagination at work in the myths and legends of, of medieval Ireland, mm-hmm. right? Yes. They have this whole world that exists that comes through the portals, uh, the gateways that are these mounds and hills. Yes. But underneath them, um, you're not going into physical ground. You're going into another world. It's access to another world. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that the grave the grave mounds that we're, we've seen in the sagas are that kind of thing that you're entering another world. But I like that idea of you're entering an imaginative space mm-hmm. that's quite different. Um, real grave mounds, uh, some of them do contain ships. Yep. But is there enough room for for you to move around and, and to swing your sword or axe and fight in that space? Uh, I would think assuredly not. Right. You think about something like the uh, the burial mound of Carr the Old in Greta's saga, right, where... Uh, mm-hmm. Greta is lowered down a long way into this mound, right? There's a rope that he has to use to get down, which he needs somebody to hold on to so he can get back out. And then he has to make his way through almost a kind of cave to get to the actual uh, mound where Carr is, is waiting. Uh, that's obviously imaginative space. Um, yeah. But even something like, I mean, I, you know, one of my go-tos for British literature is always Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Uh, right? And the Green Chapel at the end of that story has all the markings of being a burial mound um, yeah. with a sort of hole dug into the side, probably where looters had been in to steal the the goods of a grave. But when it's described, it's described as being almost a cave inside of a hill. Um, right. Right? It's become a very large space because it needs to be for the story that the author wants to tell. Uh, but now, these spaces can kind of expand and contract as the story needs them to. Yeah. Now that said, you know, you have the Neolithic burial mounds um, sure. that litter the landscape, especially of Ireland or, yes. or Scotland. Um, I, I visited one in uh, that's called Maze Howe um, in uh, the Orkneys, and there is a fair amount of room yep. in there. Um, it's not it's not the kind of thing that you could, you know, uh, go in and have a, a massive battle in with lots of, of undead Vikings. Um, but it is big enough to stand up in yep. uh, once you get inside. Um, it's, a, it's a fairly impressive place. And Vikings did hide in that uh, that particular burial mound mm-hmm. um, at some point in the past and wrote graffiti up high on the walls. They had to right. climb on each other's <laughs> shoulders to write the graffiti. Mm-hmm. It's that big of a space um, while at the same time being a very small space. Yes. Um, so th- there's an interesting history here where I think you see the, the intersection of uh, literary imagination um, uh, archaeological or or uh, Neolithic sites um, that do exist, and then their own burial traditions. Right. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. And I realize, Andrew, that that's not really a straightforward answer to your question, um, but it's kind of what there is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what we've got. The best we've got. Um, excellent. So it's time uh, now to put this episode and ourselves to bed. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to try uh, to get these episodes out uh, roughly every two weeks if we can. Uh-huh. I know we've said that kind of thing before, but we are going to try to keep these a little bit more short, a little shorter, um, hopefully a little more frequent as we work our yeah. way through Lex de la Saga. Yeah, we'll see how long that but, lasts. Uh, at least for today, I think this is how we started off Ale Saga too. Yeah, we said something very that's similar. what I'm remembering. Uh, so, so we're one episode in now. How are you feeling so far? I feel like we didn't really accomplish much because nothing <laughs> happened yet. Well, word count wise, we did get through about eight or nine percent of the saga, so it's not nothing. I mean, it was seven. It was it's more or less seven chapters yeah. of the saga. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we do want to hear from what about what you think so far. Um, what we get right, what we get wrong. Uh, what did we say that might cause Owl to come back from the grave and look sternly at us? Uh, <laughs> and how would they tell us that, Andy? 
Well, you can leave a comment on the WordPress site for the show, or you can go to our Facebook page or Instagram where we are Saga Thing Podcast, or go to Twitter where we are Saga Thing Pod. Uh, you can also email us at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can also join us in the unofficial, official Discord group for Saga Thing Podcast. Uh, that's where we're having a lot of fun and various conversations about sagas and saga-adjacent things with a lot of good people. And uh, if none of that works, just uh, arrange for your grandchildren to marry our grandchildren and have them name their kids in the form of a message to us. It'll take some time, but if you do it right, it'll be damned impressive. It'd be really impressive. <laughs> All right. We're going to be back soon with the next installment of Lux de la Saga. Until then, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Um, I, I just want to continue the conversation a bit because I think it's really interesting. Yeah. But I, I, you know, it was important that we talk about um, Alv as a political entity. But I think it's really interesting that she doesn't have any actual political influence sure. in the shaping of the land. Yeah, I mean, but of course, this is a saga that's set in the age before the thing is established, before the that sort of political structure is in place. And so, that's true. By its nature, it's more of a kind of again wild west feel. That's true, but we we also have something like an Erbigus saga where Thorolf Mosterbeard arrives early on. I, I said this, you know, as we were recording mm-hmm. the episode, um, he arrives and is able to shape the political landscape sure. by establishing order and authority. He establishes a kind of a hierarchy and a structure that we don't see all of doing because she's not. I assume, given that she's a woman, she's not able to do or not allowed to do. Possibly, but I think in a lot of ways, Erbija Saga is much more kind of self-consciously uh, post-Christian in its attitudes and mm. uh, late Icelandic in its attitudes, right? So it's so we see him setting up those things. But remember, at the same time, we also see his temple. And in the description of his temple, everything is described as having an analog in a Christian church. Absolutely. And that's a really good point, uh, just in terms of thinking about how Erbegi Saga works. Later on, we have the conversion mm-hmm. to Christianity and the importance, they emphasize there, the importance of churches. Snorri Gothi is an early adopter right. of Christianity, in part because of what the churches allow him to do. Yes, exactly. So I think so. there's an interest in, yeah. in church or, or religious structures as part of the ordering of society. And hmm, I don't, I don't want to discount the idea that Al's sex does influence the way that she is and is not allowed to kind of exercise authority. Uh, but I do think that, that Erbija uh, betrays different interests and different prejudices in the way that it yeah. talks about the past uh, compared to the way Lockstella does. Mm-hmm. And Laxdala, as as we're going to see, you know, going into this this very long journey, um, <laughs> we said it's influenced by continental romances, but yeah. it's also just very interested in the female experience. Yes, it's telling the story of Iceland from the female side of things. Absolutely, more often than not. Yeah, every saga has an agenda, and that's part of the agenda of this saga. Yeah, yeah, which is why we see Alf uh, emerging in this role mm-hmm. as uh, the supreme matriarch of Iceland. And might explain why the author felt compelled to bring together these different threads of her biography that exist in other sources and make a more coherent story for her. Yeah, yeah. Well, interesting. Um, I guess this is why we keep recording sometimes. <laughs> Just in case we have anything interesting to say later on. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, goodbye again. <laughs> 
Farewell. <laughs> All right. Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm your boy, Andy. Smash the like button, subscribe, and let us know what you think. Are we Are we a YouTube channel now? Yeah, we're a YouTube channel now. How exciting. Uh, no, these stories are early examples of one of this saga author's favorite side projects, which is an... Red leather, yellow leather. Red, yellow, yellow leather. Why can't red, you say leather, that? Yellow, red leather, leather, yellow leather. It's red, not that hard to say. Red, yellow, red leather, yellow leather. Red leather. There, I said it. You finally did, yes. You're on your fifth attempt. Uh, no. Red leather, yellow leather. Ooh, that was good. There it was. <laughs>